listening to Sharp Scratch, episode 53, Inclusive Practice. This is a BMJ podcast sponsored by Medical Protection. On Sharp Scratch, we discuss all the things that you need to know to be a good doctor that perhaps medical school hasn't taught you. And all of that's with the help of our fantastic panel of medical students, junior doctors and expert guests. I'm Nikki and I'm the editorial scholar here at the BMJ this year and I'm also a fourth year medical student at the University of Manchester. I use she and her pronouns um, and I'm really excited to be joined today by my good friends Callum and Jadera. Callum, do you want to introduce, introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Callum. I'm a non-binary medical student at the University of Southampton. I use he and they pronouns. Really great to have you with us, Callum. You're becoming an old hand at this now, a couple of episodes <laughs> in. Um, and Chidera. Hi, um, I'm a junior doctor working in a major trauma centre in northwest London and I use she and her pronouns. Great to have you with us as well. Um, and I'm delighted to introduce our expert guest today, Dr Michael Brady. Do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, yes, uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. My name's Michael Brady. I use uh, he and him pronouns. I'm the National Advisor for LGBT Health at NHS England and NHS Improvement and I also work as a sexual health and HIV consultant in South London. Well, I think I speak for all of us by saying we're really excited to have you with us today. So thank you so much for your time. So today's the final episode of this um, LGBTQ plus mini series of Sharp Scratch episodes that Callum's helped me put together as part of their elective. Um, We're still keen to continue these very important conversations, but it's three episodes from us to begin with for now. Um, I just thought this might be a good point for us to reflect a bit on why we put these episodes together with a bit of context as to why this was an important topic to cover and why I asked for Callum's help in putting it together. So for me personally, as a straight cisgendered woman, I didn't really want to be speaking on other people's behalf, but instead to amplify the right voices. So I think that's why this episode on inclusivity is so important and why we're really lucky to have Michael with us today, as well as our interview later with Lisa Power. So do listen out for that. Um, but Callum, why did you want to help me make this miniseries? I think my motivation for it is, um, you know, people keep saying that it's getting better with such remarkable confidence as if it's some sort of reason for us to shut up. And the reality is that heterosexual and cisgender people need to see that we are struggling. They need to hear that society does make things more difficult for us. And they don't want to talk about it, but that's not good enough. So I was doing some research sort of over the weekend and you know the UK is 10th in ILGA Europe's rainbow index and it's falling there's 18 and a half thousand homophobic hate crimes in the last year which is up from six and a half thousand in 2014 and these the root causes of these problems in society get reflected in the NHS and in healthcare where we are failed by medical professionals so what I hope this series does is it sort of brings queer people into the light it puts us on a stage it says to medical professionals stop listen learn it refuses to accept that sort of a tolerance of queerness is good enough and it says queerness is here queerness matters get used to it and michael sort of building on what callum said why do you think that a patient's queerness even matters to us as doctors or medical students well callum said it really well i think because it's partly about recognizing the context that queer people that people from lgbt plus communities uh, are, are living and their lived experience you know and i think i agree entirely that 
you know, it's not enough to say that we're making progress and that things are better because actually it doesn't take much scratching beneath the surface to see that, you know, people from LGBT plus communities face considerable amounts of discrimination, bullying, harassment in practically every area of their lives. And that bleeds into and uh, informs their experiences of healthcare. So it means that, you know, people are bringing that lived experience, bringing that negative experience to their healthcare, um, to the healthcare setting. It affects their confidence in, in healthcare services. It makes them less likely to attend, so it so makes their access uh, worse and, and uh, means their experience of healthcare is much worse than heterosexual and cisgendered uh, people. So I think it is really important that we don't rest on our laurels, that we put the voices of the communities affected front and centre of what we do. We don't make assumptions that things are fine when they're when they're not fine and it's really important you know as healthcare professionals to take into account in a really holistic way every aspect of our patients you know we will never deliver the excellent care that we do aspire to unless we really understand all of the components and the characteristics and the experiences of our patients and that speaks not just to their gender identity and their sexual orientation but every aspect of equality you know their you know, whether or not they're living with a disability or what what ethnic group they're from or, you know, their level of deprivation or poverty and how all of those factors uh, intertwine. And again, sort of building on that, Chidera, how do you think sort of acknowledging all of those factors helps to make us better doctors, which I guess is the whole point of our podcast? So I think a lot of this comes down to recognising that as doctors, we're not only treating physical health, but we're treating emotional and mental health, even if we're not treating someone who has a primary mental health issue. Um, I'm working in trauma at the moment. So a lot of the patients that I deal with have dealt with, for lack of a better word, very traumatic incidents that have brought them into hospital. And some of those things can be related to the positions that they fill in society. And whether, you know, whether or not they are queer, for example, can have an impact on, for example, the reason they've come in, the reasons they may be scared to go home, and even impact their um, progress in hospital. I think if you try to ignore all of that and focus on the single issue that's brought them in as a sort of isolated thing, you're doing the patient a disservice. Yeah, I think that's really important. So when we were putting this episode together, Callum caught up with Lisa Power. So let's have a little listen. Well, my name's Lisa Power. Uh, I usually say I'm a dyke who's been around for donkey's years. I came out in in the 1970s. I spent 14 years on Switchboard, which was then Gay Switchboard when I started. Got involved in HIV because we were essentially the main information source for HIV in the very early years, particularly for, for gay men and other queer people. Went on to do a lot of other things like helping to found Stonewall, being the first uh, openly LGBT person to speak at the United Nations on our rights, which was a bit scary because I was Secretary General of the International Lesbian and Gay Association at the time and spent a lot of working years and personal life around HIV, ending up as the Policy Director of Terence Higgins Trust. I'm now attempting to retire, but I can't help interfering in things. I'm a trustee of Queer Britain. I'm a trustee of the HIV Justice Network. uh, And I'm also helping to establish fast track cities in Cardiff and Vale uh, in Wales, which is where I live now. 
because I got fed up with London. And so to summarise that, I'd say queer icon, Lisa Power. I'm just a serial interferer. If I see something, I fiddle with it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so could you tell us a little bit about those sort of first maybe few months or years on Switchboard as HIV was appearing? It was very weird because it was very gradual. It's a bit like all those things people say about boiling a frog. You really don't notice till it's a bit late. Um, and we heard about this strange thing that was happening in America and we discussed it. And you have to remember in the very early days, we didn't have the internet or anything like that. Um, so we were relying upon, partly on people who were going over to New York on very cheap flights. Freddie Laker had established these £99 flights to New York, which then it was a bit more money than it is now, but it was still shockingly cheaper than anything else. So a lot of gay men were going over to the clubs in New York um, and they were bringing back newspapers um, and gay magazines which were talking about this strange new disease. And then it was picked up by the BBC um, who ran a documentary and people started to take notice. But you have to remember that you know people started dying in 81 or thereabouts, but the national campaign wasn't till 86. So there was that period of several years in between where more and more gay men were starting to die and we were gradually learning more about it. And we really didn't know who it was going to affect. We didn't know how it was transmitted. We didn't know whether it was going to kill everyone who got it or only some. Uh, and you can trace all of this history through the logbooks of gay switchboard, as we were at the time, which are all in the Bishopsgate archives. And we had logbooks where we used to put everything that was important. And when you came in to do your shift on the phones, you would read the logbook, hopefully from the last time you were in. And so that tracks a lot of, you know, the latest information or things that people were talking about or callers' concerns. Amazing piece of his documentation of living social history. Um, and you can see in there the way that we gradually started to learn more. Um, we had lots of arguments amongst ourselves on Switchboard about what this was, what we should do about it. People who wanted to talk about safer sex were picked on by some of the other volunteers as being Puritans or, you know, difficult. There were lots of rows about whether people um, should be encouraged to use condoms. Uh, there were lots of rows about whether it was actually transmitted by sex or by, by poppers, by, by people having lowered immune system from too many STIs. All these theories floating around. And, and us just trying to get a grip on it. But once we did know what was causing it, and once we had, we began to have a better idea of how it was transmitted, we began to incorporate it into literally every call. And for years, Switchboard, at some point, all of us were trained that at some point during every call that was in any way appropriate, we would say, have you heard about AIDS? That sounds like one of the big failings of how if we look at the healthcare profession now, we talk a lot about how we need to educate people and how we need to teach people and we need to sort of allow them to come to us with their questions. And for me, anyway, looking back, that seems like such a major failing on behalf of doctors and healthcare practitioners. I think most doctors would not have thought it was anything to do with them. In the early 80s, I would say the vast majority of queer people as I would say now, and then it would have been an insult, but, you know, let's use the umbrella term now. The vast majority of us were not out to GPs. Uh, we were not out to specialists. We were only ever open about our sexuality in the sexual health clinic. 
And the quality of those was highly variable at that time. But you could still get very bad reaction if you came out to to somebody anywhere in the medical system at that point. I can remember being sort of vaguely dismissed as a bit hysterical because of my journeys through trying to work out my sexuality. Um, I was given tranquilizers when I tried to come out. <laughs> well, I did come out. Um, the doctor gave me tranquilizers. Um, luckily, I've kept sexuality longer than the longer than the Valium. <laughs> I suppose then, what were some of those experiences which you were hearing on Switchboard from people who went to their doctors? You know, whether or not they had HIV, in fact. Well, there, there's a there's a very dismissive scene in It's a Sin, the Russell T Davies TV series, which is absolutely correct. Which is a GP saying to a young woman, um, "It's nothing to do with you. You don't need to know about AIDS because it's nothing to do with you." Um, there was an absolute assumption that this was only happening to people who had dirty, in inverted commas, lifestyles. And there's been a hangover from there right to this day. I mean, literally, um, last month I had a short conversation with a GP, perfectly nice person, who was nervous about... The the idea was that he was going to send a text out telling all of his patients about the availability of a postal HIV testing. And he just said, well, won't some of them be insulted? You know, and that, but back in the 80s, the assumption absolutely was that all of your patients would be insulted, that you might think that they could usefully take an HIV test or that you, you might raise the topic. And that's why to this day, there's a hangover in late diagnosis and misdiagnosis. And we know when we examine people who've been late diagnosed, that most of them have presented with indications of HIV infection at some point in the medical system in the last year. And it's just not been recognised. It sounds a lot like, you know, the doctors didn't want to know about it, which then the patients felt that, well, actually, I just can't go and speak to them about this then. And I suppose now... Yeah, it's a conspiracy of silence, just as sexuality was a conspiracy of silence. I mean, you did not want to let on to anybody that you were having, you know, if you were a housewife and you were having feelings about the housewife next door, you were not going to let on to anybody because if you eventually broke up with your husband, you would lose custody of your kids automatically if you were a dirty pervert. Um, And the level of stigma was huge. You have to remember in the early 80s, right up until the late 90s and early 2000s, really, um, there were virtually no legal protections um, for LGBT people. You know, you could lose your job. Uh, All of all sorts of things could happen to you. Um, And there was no no legal recourse. And you've mentioned that there's still a hangover from these things now. So what sort of problems are queer people facing when they go to their healthcare professional? I think there's still, an, although there's there's been a real sea change for most healthcare professionals in terms of, well, there's there's been a general social sea change. You still have um, issues where I think a lot of healthcare practitioners don't know how to raise sexuality or sexual health. Um, they see it as a specialism over there and those people can go and deal with it. And that's why we still have a lot of trouble um, getting specialists in indicator conditions for HIV to remember to to consider HIV as a differential diagnosis. Um, so th- there's, a, there's an ingrained reluctance to deal with the issue because it could get messy somewhere in people's heads. I mean, 
I would love to think that healthcare practitioners are all absolute paragons of how to talk to everybody else. But we all know that, I mean, communication, human communication can get difficult. And when you're trying to deal with people in very short consultations, you can be opening up a can of worms by starting to talk about sexuality and things like that. And I think most GPs just want want to get the tests done for what they think might be going on and get someone moved on. And I can't blame them for that. But really, we need to be thinking quite hard now about how we raise these issues. And I think GPs and indeed other healthcare practitioners are probably sick to death of training of all kinds, taking them away from the coalface, as it were. But it's really, really important to just learn the tricks of how to gently ask things, how to not make assumptions. I mean, you know, when I started out, the absolute core assumption every time I walked into any kind of healthcare was that I was heterosexual, um, that I could be pregnant, um, you know, all of these things. And I understand why those questions need asking, but we have to find some fairly neutral ways of asking them. And I think even even trying to be helpful can lead to some very... Um, you know, if you're if you're not, if you're not really sure what you're doing, I'll never forget my um, my girlfriend at one time. We just registered with a new GP, and it was a young, very helpful, friendly woman GP. Um, my girlfriend had some health problems, and the GP um, was having to examine her, and so she decided to try and make small talk. And she said to my girlfriend, "So, how long have you been a lesbian?" Just as she put her hand inside her for an internal exam, my girlfriend came home and said she was really bursting to say, oh, about five minutes. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) But she really didn't want to upset or embarrass the doctor because she knew that she was doing her best. But it's like, you know, tactful timing on the small talk. (laughs) But, you know, good, good good for that doctor for actually just trying to to reach out and make a conversation about something she was clearly not entirely comfortable with. Okay, so listening back to that, I think it might be quite nice to reflect on that interview and sort of what inclusive practice actually means to all of us. Pretty much Lisa's nailed it. Um, I mean, I know Lisa, I used to work with her at Terence Higgins Trust. She's been a great inspiration to me and she absolutely is a queer icon, whatever she says. Um, For me, it's fundamentally about stepping back and thinking, you know, do our patients see themselves in the services that we provide? You know, are we open, welcoming and accepting? And if we put that simple challenge or benchmark to most of our services, the answer is no. Uh, And the solution always is to engage with the communities that we're trying um, trying to serve. You know, too often we don't acknowledge that we don't really know and that's fine that we don't really know but the way to know is not just to avoid it because it's too difficult or makes me feel too uncomfortable is to actually to talk to gay people to bisexual people for trans and non-binary and gender diverse people involve them in the services that we provide and and you know there's lots of examples of of really simple things that we can do to make services inclusive it's not massively complicated you know it's like thinking about the imagery that we've got on our websites you know do they include same-sex couples do they include gender diverse people really simple the language that we use too frequently it's 
very binary in terms of gender. You know, it, it, it do, so do, do a simple sense check of the information that we put in our health promotion on our websites to make sure that it's truly inclusive, that we're not misgendering, that we're supportive of corrective pronoun use. And even just simple things like wearing a rainbow badge or a rainbow lanyard or putting a poster up in your waiting room for an LGBT charity. Those are things that the majority of our patients won't see, but for the minority who come from LGBT plus communities, it makes a massive difference. And the other thing I think which is really important that Lisa raised is this question about being people being comfortable to be out. Um, there's lots of surveys that show that a significant minority of LGBT plus people are not out to their healthcare professionals because they're not asked about their sexual orientation or their gender or they don't feel comfortable or they don't feel that it's relevant. But it's completely relevant. Uh, And I think the system needs to be better, the healthcare system, uh, asking the question. You know, we're very comfortable asking people about their ethnicity, about whether they have a disability, about, you know, taking a general history, but we're still not comfortable enough to ask about sexual orientation orientation and gender identity and by doing that we can make massive inroads in understanding the health inequalities that LGBT plus people experience but also it's a really simple way of demonstrating our inclusivity you know if you're a trans man or you're non-binary and you register with a GP practice or even if you're employed by the NHS and you get to fill in a form that only offers you two tick boxes of male and female, you're already excluded, you know, and that service or that organisation is already saying, I don't recognise you and you're not valued uh, by us. So there's lots of simple things that we can all do. Callum, I saw you were nodding away furiously as Michael was speaking. Do you want to add anything there? I think there's um, uh, something which is really obvious when you point it out, but sort of doesn't ever get noticed, is engage with the communities we try to serve. If we think about who we engage with, it's always just that typical patient. They tend to be sort of the white person who has the time to come and engage with the community. But until you say that, sort of no one really notices that's the case. And I, I think the other, the other things which I sort of noted down was, how are you going to gently ask things? How are you not going to make assumptions? Do you have an ingrained reluctance to address it, as it might get messy? Are all points which me and Nikki discussed so often when trying to sort of script these issues. So it's great that they've, you know, just come up as sort of these are really obvious points to make. I mean, I mean, I think that the how are you going to ask questions thing is a really important question. When, when, we're, when I'm doing a lot, of, a, lot, a lot of work to try and improve this data collection thing, there's the, I always kind of section it into two things. There's kind of infrastructure things. So actually our IT systems often are not fit for purpose. You know, don't have enough options to ask the questions. But then there's the hearts and minds thing, which is really about twofold, ensuring that healthcare professionals or people working in the health service understand the importance of asking these questions you know I still frequently get people saying oh well we you know we treat everybody equally so we don't need to ask those questions and clearly that's not not the case and also for for service users for patients themselves to you know who who understandably because of the inequalities that still exist and because of the poor experience that they or their friends may, may have had are reluctant to share that information and I think that's the other thing that the health service needs to be you know to understand is that you know there is a lack of confidence and trust because there is an expectation of poor service because poor service still is relatively common and we need it's our responsibility to to address that so I think fundamentally it's about explaining to people why that information is important how it's going to be used if it's going to be shared with whom and what you know what what it's going to what's going to be done what's going to be done with that because 
Generally, if you explain to people why you're asking a question and what you're going to do with it and give them confidence and assurance about um, the security of that information and the confidentiality of that information, then generally people are are much happier to to share it. But generally, if we normalise it, put it up front and ask everybody the same questions, I think that's a big step to making it much more acceptable. So... A lot of what you've just said, though, suggests that a lot of it is more of an institutional thing that we need to be encouraging institutions to put these questions into their forms or things like that. But I mean, I guess the majority of our listeners are medical students and junior doctors. So, Michael, what would your advice be to um, a medical student or a junior doctor who might come across, say, a form like that and notice that there are gaps in the questions that they're asking and things that should be being normalised aren't? I think that's a really good point. And I think it's it's relevant not just for medical students, it's just for a lot of people. A lot of people will, you know, don't have power or authority or aren't the people that have the budget or that make the decisions. But we do all have the opportunity to be advocates or be allies or to speak up, you know. So I think if you see a form that is asking about demographics or characteristics of your patients that are relevant, perhaps it may not be clinically relevant but they certainly be, will be relevant well they won't always be clinically relevant sometimes they are clinically relevant um, but they they certainly will be relevant in terms of understanding your patient as a whole and as an indiv- as an individual then challenge it you know raise it you know if you're not the person who's in charge of the form get in touch with the person who is in charge of the form um, and it, you know it's 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 not just about well, there's lots of arguments that you can make about why to do it. You know, certainly there's the patient-related argument, which is the strongest argument, but there's also a legal argument for doing this. You know, every NHS organisation, every public sector organisation has to abide by the Equalities Act and we've got a public sector equality duty to make sure we're not discriminated against, discriminating against groups and that we're also supporting these and, and eliminating inequalities. And you can't... Um, do your duty under the Equality Act unless you actually collect information on the people that you're meant to be protecting. So, you know, in a way, I always just say, well, as an organisation, you're not meeting your your responsibilities under the public sector equality duty or the Equality Act if you're not collecting information on sexual orientation and gender identity because you don't know the numbers and the experience and the outcomes of those communities. So I think that my advice would be, you have more of a voice than you think. You don't have to be the person who's in charge and, and raise it. any of the panel have any examples of how they've seen sort of inclusive practice helping patients so i guess and the patient that i'm thinking of in particular um was a member of the lgbtq community but this is something that actually happens quite a lot is assumptions about home life and um, what that's like so with our service often people come in Uh, quite quickly these aren't elective admissions so they come in with very little known about them and so when it comes to rehabbing them and planning discharge that can be slightly more complicated Um, and I think sometimes particularly maybe for doctors who are slightly newer there's this assumption that a lot of our patients just have um, you know a white picket fence house with a uh, again supportive family to go home to that are going to help them get over their injury very quickly Um, 
And I think something that's really important for us to do as doctors, as you've mentioned, Callum, is to actually look at someone's support system because that can have a huge impact on when they leave hospital, where they should go to after hospital um, and what their uh, recovery is going to be like. And having, um, particularly we have a discharge lead, but also having um, seniors who are more in sync with the fact that some of our patients may struggle with that aspect of their recovery, I've, I, for me, is really important. And on the flip side, um, for patients where it, there's clearly been an assumption that this patient has XYZ to go home to, and it becomes apparent on the day of discharge often that they don't have that, that can lead to um, a lot of problems with their care. Okay, we'll talk a little bit more about this in just a moment, but that'll be right after this. How much do you care about indemnity right now? Probably not a lot. You're still a few years away from really worrying about claims and complaints from patients. But being part of medical protection is about a lot more than just indemnity. We can be there if something goes wrong, but we're also here to help make sure things go right too. We're the only medical defence organisation that protects doctors all over the world. From London to Brisbane, Cork to Cape Town, 300,000 members benefit from our expert advice and support throughout their career. During your years at medical school, your membership is completely free. You'll get training resources that can help you become an even better doctor, plus a dedicated student team there for you when you need it most. And when it comes to your elective, you can trust in our international experience to protect you wherever you choose to go. It's no wonder that 90% of medical students in the UK choose to be part of medical protection. You can find out more at medicalprotection.org. Okay, back to the show. So because we were so excited to have Michael with us today, we wanted to give you all, our lovely listeners, a chance to ask Michael your own questions. So Sharp Scratch is back to being your medical school agony aunt. Um, And here is our first clip. Hi, I'm Lucia, final year medical student. My question is, as a straight ally, how can I show my queer patients that I want to create a safe space for them, but also that I'm coming from outside the community and so I may need to signpost them elsewhere? Thank you. That's a great question and a really good start. So thanks for that, Lucia. I mean, I I think asking that question of yourself is the first step, you know, so you're clearly thinking about it. So you'll almost certainly get it right if you're asking those questions. I think uh, there are two approaches. One is sort of the the external and visible symbols that we kind of we can put out before a patient comes to see us and the second one is asking the patient themselves so the the first bit i would say is it is really powerful and impactful um, to have symbols of uh, being an ally, of being a safe space. So rainbow badges, rainbow lanyards, having posters about um, LGBT organisations or specifically focused towards LGBT uh, communities. Use of pronouns makes a massive difference for trans and non-binary and gender diverse people. So putting your pronouns on your badge, on your hello, my name is badge, introducing yourself with your pronouns, um, putting them on email signatures in social media bios if you if you have if you're on social media so those are all signs that somebody will you can communicate to somebody even before you've spoken to them that you are um, a safe person and an ally and then the second thing I think is just ask the individual and I think you know you, you to, to a certain extent you can't make a rule for every setting and every situation and every person uh, from LGBT plus communities because we're all diverse and we're all different uh, so 
ask the individual, don't make assumptions, ask how they'd like to be referred to, ask what language they'd like to use, take your cues uh, from them. And I think the final thing I would say is, if you make a mistake, and we're all human and we probably will do, acknowledge it, apologise for it, correct it, and and move on. Thank you. Callum, did you want to add something there? Yeah, so I just... Whenever I've ended up speaking about sort of my queerness with a medical professional, it's had to be like a very deliberate choice to make because it's always something which like you hold yourself back from, think about and say, okay, fine. So if the patient is telling you something, it's probably important that you've reassured them that you've heard it or that you've, you know, you you need to sort of reassure the patient that, yeah, okay, I hear you, that's fine. Rather than just sort of rushing past it and skipping on and leaving me sat there a bit like, oh gosh, um, okay, I feel uncomfortable now. (laughs) Because you are the safe space. You're in the same curtain with everyone. So you are the safe space. Thank you. That's really important. Shall we hear our next clip? Hi, my name is Aaron. I'm a pharmacist by professional background and also a PhD researcher. How can healthcare professionals provide culturally appropriate care for sexual and gender minority migrants? Thanks very much. Okay, thanks for that question. Um, I think there's a a couple of thoughts on that. One, it it, it introduces a concept that we've not touched on yet, but is really important, that one of intersectionality and the fact that um, none of us have one particular characteristic or experience or, you know, have one aspect that is is dominant. We're all a really rich mix. uh, And even, you know, the LGBT plus umbrella is a rich mix of diversity. And there are often complex interactions that we overlook between our characteristics and our experiences. So the experiences of LGBT plus people from ethnic minority groups is different. The experience of, of, of LGBT plus migrants is is different. So I think my answer to, to Aaron's question would be a lot of the principles that we've talked about before about, you know, being visibly inclusive, um, you know, thinking about the language and the representation, engaging with communities, um, not making assumptions, putting the patient and the individual sent front and centre and understanding and asking about their experience are, are the same and perhaps even more important for those who are minorities within a minority um, because there are often complex, more complex um, things that are impacting on their experience and their, and their, and their outcomes. And I think f- for those um, uh, individuals, so let's use the LGBT plus migrants, it, it, it's even more important for us to think about um, uh, sort of creative ways of engaging with those communities. I think you know the the, the smaller the group that get gets, the harder often it is for us to understand their experience. And this comes back to another general point that I would make about engaging with communities is quite often as organisations certainly just because it's easier. You know we rely on surveys, um, large surveys sometimes, but when you're trying to capture the experience of of, of um, marginalized or disadvantaged or much smaller groups surveys often miss them you know so you could, even if you ask questions about sexual orientation gender identity and whether or not you're a, 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 from a, a migrant population even a massive survey that's going to be a really small response group so we need to be much more creative about and about engaging with those communities when they are smaller if, if that makes sense so surveys are not enough uh, and and my answer always is you know that and it's something the nhs doesn't do very well it sometimes does but it's a bit patchy which is actually 
working in partnership with community organisations, voluntary sector. So there will be an organisation, if not locally, definitely nationally, that is working with and engaging with LGBT plus migrant populations and probably has, certainly has much more experience than we do in the NHS, are much more connected to those communities and probably has some, if not all, of the answers that we're looking for. So as well as thinking about that individual, my other bit of advice would be look for and engage with and work with um, ideally deliver services in partnership with uh, voluntary and community sector organisations that are working with those communities that we're thinking about. In general, I don't think the NHS works well with community or grassroots organisations um, kind of across the board. And a lot of these um, organisations have far more information, time, research and facilities that will better serve our patients than we can. Um, and I again, particularly in my role at the moment, refer to them far more than they ever have before. And I think one thing you realise is that the more you look for, the more of these organisations that they are, and there literally will be an organisation to cover whichever minority your patient falls into. So just draw upon that really valuable experience. Yeah, I think that's really great advice. Thank you. Um, I think we've got time for one more um, question. I'm Sam. How would I go about referring someone to a gender identity clinic? And given the waiting time for some clinics is now 26 years, what is the NHS planning to do to rectify that? Um, Okay, so you're right. Um, Waiting lists for gender identity clinics are unacceptably long uh, and considerably have a massive negative impact on um, trans people or, or gender diverse people um so there's two things i think there's one around this one there is you know what is the nhs doing about it so I'll, I'll i'll come to that and i also would say what should all of us be doing to support those who are struggling those trans and non-binary people gender diverse people who are struggling um almost whether or not they're on a waiting list uh, for gender identity services but that waiting list definitely makes things uh worse so the what's the nhs doing about it there's a couple of things One is about um, delivering new models of uh, gender identity care. So currently, certainly for adults, there are seven specialist gender identity services around the country. For children and young people, there's just just one. So the number is too small. The other challenge is that the workforce is too small as well. So even if we threw millions and millions and millions of pounds at it, there, there aren't sort of gender specialists, gender identity specialists kind of waiting in the wings to just pick up the services, which would be a relatively short term or a relatively quick fix for it. So one of the things that the NHS is doing is commissioning um, new models of gender identity care. And they are being called pilots because they are being piloted and evaluated, but I suspect they will become the... the, um, the new model of how we deliver care. So um, starting from last summer, um, uh, the NHS England has commissioned four pilots. And these are, there's in slightly, they're slightly different models um, in different settings. So there's one, the first one that started last summer is working out of the uh, sexual health service at Dean Street in London. Uh, there's one that's been run in, in uh, primary care in Manchester, one in Cheshire in the Wirral, and there was another one announced recently which is going to open up in the east of England again uh, with a predominantly primary care model, uh, which is hoping to open up in the next month or two. And what these will be doing is taking people from the current waiting list, but the important thing, I think, is that they are testing a new model which is not specialist-focused, but actually is being driven by 
appropriately trained generalists like primary care physicians or sexual health physicians with some specialist input. And in a way, this kind of model of a more community-based integrated healthcare delivery is kind of where the whole of the NHS is moving. It's certainly something that we've been doing more of in, in HIV, you know, um, where there's appropriate specialist input, but more support or care delivered delivered by primary care specialists. So these pilots are going to be a, a really important way to increase, increase capacity in the system. And, and I suspect if in five or 10 years time, it'll be what gender care, gender identity care looks like, much less focused on a few specialist services, but much more broadly delivered across the whole of the system. The other thing to address the workforce issue, workforce issue is that NHS England commissioned um, some uh, specialist training which has been delivered by the Royal College of Physicians so actually there's a standardised way to train up people to work in gender identity uh, services and the first cohort of people have, have now come in, will finish that training I think in the autumn I think there's 40 or 45 people that have done that and that's considerable considering that I think across the whole of the gender identity workforce there's about 80 or 90 whole time equivalents so you know you get 40 new people it makes quite a significant uh, impact so training is going to be really key I think we've got definitely a lot more to do to, to do here though because for too long um, gender identity is, is has been far too specialized you know if you go through medical school or as you're training as a junior doctor you don't get any you don't get exposed to you don't get any experience of gender identity care and there's probably loads of people who would be interested in working that in that you know general medics people who are interested in mental health um people who are interested in being endocrinologists surgeons so i don't also think the system needs to think more about how do we teach everybody both in an undergraduate and postgraduate way about specialist gender identity care how do we expose them to to, to it because frequently we choose our professions by our experience perhaps as medical students or certainly as junior doctors and if you don't experience it you're not going to think of it as a as a career so I think there's more that the system can do so yes the system needs to bring the waiting list down but we need to acknowledge that um, uh, people need a lot more support whether that's mental health support or just being affirming or better support to access uh, some elements of treatment like hormone um, provision so a lot of Trans people who are on the waiting list will, understandably, choose to access hormone therapy, for example, themselves, either by going privately, which is unfair and an, an unnecessary expense and adds extra layers of uh, inequality, because you can only do that if you can afford it, or just by buying hormones themselves online and administering them themselves in a way that's not as safe and not as secure. So I think... The system uh, by which I've been pr predominantly primary care, and there are lots of brilliant GPs out there, but but not always and not everywhere, need to be able to support those people who are doing that in a more sort of systematic way. So one of the things that I'm personally working on at the moment, which we hope to publish in the next few months, is some guidance for GPs around how to support trans people on the waiting list, how to safely support people uh, who are sourcing their own hormones, how to prescribe hormones, um, how to better link into, uh, you know, mental health services for those who need them. So um, we definitely need more guidance and more training, particularly for primary care, to address this issue. Sorry, long answer, but... Um, no, good, really problems. good practical advice and quite exciting to hear about um, how things are beginning to improve and what's sort of in place for us. So... 
So um, as we're reaching the end of the episode, did anyone have any sort of takeaway messages or final reflections that they wanted to share with our listeners? If you have listened to all these three episodes, then, you know, thank you. I think it's it's a really great commitment that you've made because they are quite long. I respect that. Um, So, you know, it's great that you've sort of come on this this series with us. and I think, just think it's a really cool thing that we've been able to do and I hope everyone's enjoyed it. Yeah, definitely. I would echo everything that Callum just said there. Tadera, did you have any sort of takeaway messages about inclusive practice, this episode in particular? Um, so I think um, what Dr Brady said about if you're already asking the questions, you've kind of taken the first step. Um, I think with inclusivity across the board, if you're already trying to think about how you can be a better doctor in that aspect that's a really important step to take because that awareness is what will allow you to develop further and to seek out those resources that will benefit both you and your patients. And I would, what would I say? I mean, I, I suspect that if if you have listened to all of these podcasts, we're slightly preaching to the converted. Mm-hmm. So I think <laughs> some of it is about, you know, what, what change can you affect? And we all have power. So never think that you don't have influence. You know, even if it's just challenging bad behavior challenging um you know lgbt phobia challenging the kind of microaggressions and uh, unnecessary comments and jokes that you might hear in in your workplace or 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 amongst your colleagues and that kind of broad being an ally thing you know that you can do a lot yourself very simply and you do have power to to affect change by challenging bad behavior and there are many people myself included who will support you uh, to to do that, and I think it's it's a it's about always, and I was going to say that I think this, about any area about being a doctor. You know, we can all learn the sciencey stuff. You know, we all know we can do that. That's how we are good enough to get into medical school in the first place. But you know, the 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 sort of algorithms and pattern recognition of detecting a disease, coming up with a differential diagnosis, and picking a treatment or an operation for it. That's that in a way is the simple bit. The bit that makes us the best doctors are these things about constantly learning recognizing that we don't always get it right and putting all of our patients at the center of what we do and treating them as as individuals and with respect and dignity yeah i think that is the best takeaway message that we could have um possibly had for the for the whole series and sort of touching on what michael said if you do think that you've listened to all three episodes and it is i guess a bit preaching to the converted then do share the episodes with your friends with your medical schools with your classmates do um do share sharp scratch with them and If I could just say one last thing, if anybody wants to get in touch with me and my team at NHS England, either to hear about the work that we're doing to address LGBT health inequalities, you can sign up to our newsletter, or to share um, information about work that you're doing, perhaps. Uh, I'm really keen to hear about good practice and to uh, promote that and share it. Then you can get in touch with us um, on our email address, which is england.lgbtadvisor, and that's advisor with an O, england.lgbtadvisor at nhs.net. Or you can follow me and contact me on Twitter. I'm on there as at Dr. M. Brady. That's at D-R-M-B-R-A-D-Y. Um, I'm particularly interested to hear about any work that's happening in medical schools because we're doing some work at the moment to produce some guidance and recommendations about best practice in how uh, we can improve the teaching around LGBT health and health inequalities in medical schools. So please do get in touch if you'd like to. Thanks.
yeah, so that's all from us on Sharp Scratch today. If you want to hear more from us, subscribe to Sharp Scratch wherever you get your podcasts. And in two weeks' time, you'll be notified of our next episode. While you wait for the next one, do check us out on social media. We're BMJ Student on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Let us know what you think about the podcast using the hashtag Sharp Scratch. I'd also love to hear your ideas for what you think we should be covering on later in covering later on in the season um it's also really helpful to us if you can leave us a rating and a review on apple pods or wherever you get your podcasts as it helps other med students and junior doctors find the show but until then bye from us bye, bye. bye.